I'm going to tell mom and dad you said shut up when Lays were here. Ah! A good story takes us on a journey. It reminds us of where we've been and shows us where we could go. A good story makes us feel and inspires us to act. Welcome to the Good Story Podcast, where everyday stories that make you laugh, cry, or feel slightly uncomfortable will leave you inspired as Kirsten King tells true stories and teaches truth. For too many years, this threat haunted me. My sister was going to tell my parents that I said shut up when Lays were at our house. But I'll get to that soon enough. For now, we're continuing to go through our series in Philippians. Have you even noticed that's what we've been doing? I'm probably not making that as obvious as I could, but we are. We ended season two with the introduction to the city and the people of Philippi. We talked about Paul's visit there when he went with Silas, Timothy, and Luke. In episode one of this season, we looked at Philippians 1.6, where Paul said to the people who met at the home of Lydia in Philippi, making up the church there, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it onto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The next week, we looked more closely at Paul's prayer for this church in chapter one, verses nine to 11, where he wrote, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And last week, we looked at Paul's bold statement in chapter 1, verse 21, where he said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We're challenged to think about how we live. In fact, as I was concluding last week's recording and heard myself say, may we know Christ so intimately that all that matters while we're here, our jobs, our relationships, our homes, our friends, and our experience, may they all be enjoyed because of Christ. May they all be focused on Christ. And may we live with a confident faith knowing that the Christ who saves is the Christ that transforms and is the Christ that will continue for eternity to be worshiped and praised and adored. As I heard myself say that, I felt convicted myself. I asked, is this how I'm living? Is it truly all Christ? I continued to read in Philippians and came across verse 27, where Paul says, whatever happens, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul wanted to encourage the Philippians to have their conduct match their calling. Their calling was to be saved through Christ, the good news of the gospel. And he said, your conduct should match that. It should match that. It should be worthy of the gospel. He started with a phrase, though, whatever happens. What is he referring to? He's saying, whether I live or die right? Because he's just been talking about to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'd like to see you, but boy, it would be with Christ to be even better. He'd just been from there. And now he says, he lets them know that whatever happens, my desire for the people here in Philippi, my desire for you is that you would remain strong in what you believe. He went on and said, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit contending as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This, what is this? Standing firm, right? This, he goes on, is a sign to them 
those who are oppressing them. This, you're standing firm, is a sign to those who are oppressing you that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What was Paul's struggle? Paul's struggle was he was imprisoned when he was in Philippi. He's imprisoned 10 years later while he's writing this letter. But he's still telling them, here, this is how I want you to live with in, as one. I want you to be unified. I don't want you to be afraid by those who are opposing you because even as you stand strong and against those who oppose you, that will be a testimony to them that what you say you believe is true because look at how it is upholding you in the midst of this difficult circumstance. Paul was like, hey, whether or not I can be present with you need not affect how you behave. In my absence, I'd love for you still to stand strong together, be firm in what you believe, and don't be afraid of the opposition. Even though, this is 10 years later, the opposition hadn't died down any. In fact, it had been on the increase. And Paul would have known that to be true from the reports that Epaphroditus brought him when he brought him his supplies. Paul needed to remind them that the suffering didn't mean there was something wrong. Belief in Jesus isn't a free pass for all things tough. We've even talked about that before, but it's a theme that often comes up in scripture, but it doesn't come up as often in our everyday conversations. God doesn't owe us. God has plans that are good. He's working those plans out in each one of our lives as we place our faith and trust in him. We trust him to work that plan in our lives And if at some point that plan involves suffering, we need to lean into the peace and rest that he says he's going to give us in the midst of our difficult circumstances, a peace that goes beyond all we could understand. And it is interesting that when we do that, it is a testimony to those who are around us of the power of God at work in us and through us and sometimes in spite of us or in spite of them. That's exactly what Paul was talking about when he said, and I repeat, this is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed, but you'll be saved in that by God. I'm sure many of you have read stories about people of great faith who also testify that this is true. I'm not sure, but have any of you read the book, The Hiding Place, before? If you haven't, I recommend it. It's the story chronicling the Nazi invasion of the Netherlands, and more specifically, how this invasion affected the Ten Boom family. Corey Ten Boom was one of the family members who wrote the book. The whole Ten Boom family had strong morals that were based on their Christian beliefs, They lived as believers, and when they saw that their Jewish friends were being persecuted, they felt obligated to help. They used the downstairs of their home, which was the family's watch and repair shop, as kind of a secret headquarters for an anti-Nazi operation. Corey herself was involved in secretive operations. She used stolen ration cards. She eventually hid Jews in her own home, and unfortunately, eventually was discovered through espionage. A man came and posed as a Jewish person looking for a safe place, and he was a spy. And Corey then was captured and then subsequently held at a variety of concentration camps where she was severely mistreated. She later wrote what she learned about the struggle and forgiveness during that time. And she said, even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. 
When God tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. What a powerful statement. Because there are times we've been persecuted and oppressed and mistreated, and it hasn't been by any fault of our own. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's a natural consequence, but sometimes it's not because of any fault of our own. And as Corey attested to here, she said, Jesus, I cannot forgive those who are oppressing me. And asked, give me your forgiveness. And I love this phrase. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges but on his. Paul knew this to be true. (laughs) He wanted the behavior of the believers to match God's call on their lives, whether or not he was there to observe it. I'm pretty convinced that Corey learned it from him as well. He said, whether or not he's released from prison or died in it, Paul said, I want you to continue to conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. Do the right thing so you're doing the right thing. Then you'll have nothing to be ashamed of or afraid of, which brings me to the threat my older sister used on me for years and years and too many years. We weren't allowed to say shut up when we were growing up. I can't imagine a lot of families encouraged it, but ours really discouraged it in a big way. When our kids were younger, I also told them not to say it, and they didn't often. I do remember one time, though, a woman had just come to bring us cookies after we had first moved to a new location, and I had just told the kids, okay, guys, go get your shoes on. We're going to get ready to go to a park. So we were getting people ready to go to the park, and in this process, the doorbell rang, I went to the door and there is the sweetest of ladies standing there to welcome me to town. I invited her in as we walked back to the kitchen and I put the cookies on the counter and and she asked if she could have a quick tour of the house. And so we went up the back stairs through the bedrooms, went down the front stairs and then we stood back in the dining room while she told me how adventurous I was to take on such a remodel with such young children. She talked and talked and I talked and and eventually my two-year-old daughter talked. She stood between us threw her arms in the air, faced this new woman and yelled, shut up. (laughs) I quickly got down and asked her to please apologize and reminded her that we don't say that. And she says, my brothers did. (laughs) And likely they had, but they shouldn't have either. So, and they didn't say it right then. So this apology was on her own. She did apologize and then went to another room to wait for me. As I was walking the woman to the door, she also apologized for staying too long and for talking too long and for showing up unannounced and uninvited and kept on. And I told her, oh, you have nothing to apologize for. And I said, if you want, I'm going to gift you with this story. You have the freedom to tell anybody what just happened to you, that you just came to welcome the new people and their little daughter just looked up at you and said, shut up. I don't know if she ever told it, but I told her she sure could if she wanted to. My kids continued to live under the shut up ban, but they, like me as a kid, found ways around it. My siblings and I used to look at each other with disdain and we would say, up, shut, backwards, to whoever was bugging us the most. My kids would look at each other and say, shut, ump, for the very same reason. (laughs) Both phrases were said with such force and anger, it was clear that while the letter of the law was being followed, certainly the spirit of the law was not. I didn't always say, up, shut, backwards, however. One time, I said the real thing. My parents didn't hear me, though. They didn't hear me because they were out of town. They almost never went out of town. And I don't know the reason for their absence at this point. What I do know is that we were being watched, my older sister, younger sister, and I, by our pastor, Don, and his wife, Judy. Wait a second. His wife? Judy? Sorry, I'm just thinking about that Jetson song. Is that their names? Meet George. Oh, George. Meet George Jetson. Oh, yeah. Jane, his wife, daughter, Judy. Their dog, Elroy. Sorry. I'm okay. I, his boy, Elroy, meet George Judson, his boy, Elroy, daughter, Judy, Jane, his wife. Okay. 
I, okay, let me just get back here for a second. What, what threw me off here? His wife, Judy, that's it. Okay, I apologize. Our pastor, Don, and his wife, Judy, were watching us, right? Yeah, okay. Um, at any rate, they weren't the Jetsons. Don and Judy, their last name was Lay. It was spelled L-E-I-G-H, just so you can imagine it correctly and just get back into this uh, story. I don't think they themselves had any kids at this point, but maybe their daughter, Susan, was a baby, maybe. At any rate, my parents went out of town, Pastor Lay, Don, his wife, Judy, and likely their baby moved into our home to watch us for a while. Maybe it was a weekend. Maybe it was a week. I don't even know. It felt like a month. I don't remember any of the circumstances leading up to the incident. I don't remember what my sister was saying or doing that was bothering me so much, but she was clearly doing something and that something was clearly loud and it was too loud, way too loud, loud enough to warrant a toddler's expletive. So I looked up at her and yelled as loud as I could, shut up. I remember it like it was yesterday. She didn't care. She didn't cry. She was likely six at this time. I don't even remember what happened next. Like, I don't know if she told on me or if I was just so loud that everybody heard. What I do remember is that Pastor Lay, who I adored, was quickly over to me with a soft answer to turn away my wrath. He told me, I don't think your mom and dad want you to say that. And my sister stood in the office eagerly affirming that. They don't. I remember thinking, oh, no, now he knows we can't say that. I was holding out a little hope that maybe he thought things were a little loose in our home. Or maybe I just was wishing they were at that point, but they weren't. And he knew it and I knew it. And that was that. And my parents came home and I waited nervously after the lays left to get called into the kitchen to have the big confrontive talk, but it never happened. I remember going to church and thinking, I wonder if things are going to be different between me and the pastor now, but they weren't. I continued to enjoy seeing him at church. I continued to love listening to his object lessons on Sunday mornings. And I sought to emulate him, trying to think of some of my own. I continued to think his wife, Judy, was so nice. And because my parents never said anything about the incident, I was pretty sure Pastor Lay hadn't said anything to them about it either. I knew I'd gotten away with something egregious, but it brought me no joy because my sister also had been putting together two plus two and had also come up with four. It wasn't lost on her that I hadn't been called out by my parents for my great sin. She too concluded that Pastor Lay had not told them about how I was acting in their absence. But how she dealt with that information at that age still impresses me. I don't know if it was a stroke of genius or if it was something that just happened by default, but the phrase, I'm going to tell mom and dad you said shut up when Lay's were here, was introduced to our vernacular. If she ever did something I didn't think she should do, and I would say, I'm telling, she'd say, well, I'm going to tell mom and dad you said shut up when Lays were here. Oh, and I thought, well, I guess I can't. I was threatened by this statement for years. For years. I remember because we moved even from that house that we'd been staying at to a new home. So it's been a long time now. And then one day I thought of a way out. I lied. She came in hot with, I'm going to tell mom and dad that you said shut up when Lays were here. And I countered. I said, I already did. To which she replied, well, I'm going to remind them. And she'd walk toward the door. No, I said, okay, 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 okay. You might be thinking, what on earth? What would your parents have done if they heard about it anyway? Honestly, I don't know. And it probably wouldn't have been a big deal. Maybe it would have been, uh, we're disappointed in you conversation or something like that. But the point was, I knew I did something in their absence I never would have done if they had been present. And I didn't want them to find out. Let me say, this is not exactly what Paul had in mind with his verse, but sort of. Paul wanted the Philippians to know they were living for God alone. 
And if he was there to teach them how to do it more so, or if he wasn't, God was still present and he could still inform their behaviors and allow their conduct to match their calling. That was the job of the Holy Spirit. And he was living and active in each one of them. And Paul loved these people and he knew they were under persecution. And he says, I know what you're going through. Remember, I went through it there too. And guess what? Here I am going through it over here as well. But please don't abandon your faith. Ultimately, as those who are called followers of Christ, live your life, conduct yourselves as followers of Christ. And honestly, if we too live with this in the forefront of our minds, I am sure through the power of the Holy Spirit at work that Christ will continue for eternity to be worshiped and praised and adored as we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. But God, this is too big for us. It's too big for us to do it on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit at work in each one of us. And Lord, I do not know what each person who's even hearing this is going through. I don't know how they might be feeling persecuted. I don't know what temptations they might be going through. But Lord Jesus, would you please, through the power of your spirit, enable and empower them to allow their conduct to match their calling, for them to not stoop to the level of an oppressor, but Lord, for them to walk boldly, not under fear, not under fear like I'm going to tell. But Lord, under the grace that you've so graciously bestowed upon us, grace upon grace upon grace each day, may we live in that grace to your praise and for your glory.